Blog Talk Radio. And all of our programs are available here on blogtalkradio.com or on iTunes if you just look up the Mind Whisperer. We also have a Facebook page, facebook.com forward slash the Mind Whisperer. Well, let's look right into the topic today. I'm your host, Michael Gordon. Thanks for joining the program. And for those of you who may be new to the show, uh, you may have read my bio, you may have not. I have been a Aikido teacher and practitioner for 20 years. I'm also a practicing clinical uh, psychotherapist in Vancouver, Canada, and a blogger and writer and radio host on what I call spiritual psychology for daily life. So what do we mean by the topic today? The paradox of self versus selflessness. You know, a lot of people get this uh, complex topic very... um, They have a difficult time interpreting this topic because Western psychology, you know, not to belittle Western psychology in in the least, but, uh, you know, since Sigmund Freud, the West has been preoccupied with the psyche and... um, the ego itself is a term derived from Freud that really is identifying a concept of self that is really a construct of the psyche. It's not like Freud did a, a uh, you know, di- dissection of the human brain and anatomically located, you know, part of the brain called the ego. But that's how we've come to understand the notion of self in the popular sense, that it, this aspect of our makeup, our character, the defining characteristics of who we are, our patterns of thought and emotion 
and communication and behavior are somehow thought to be something that is, you know, by nature uh, fixed in, in within ourselves. That's an aspect of our uh, genealogy or our genetic inheritance or the environment in, uh, in which we have been conditioned. Well, those things are true, except that the, the self and, the, and what we experience as the self really is an aspect of consciousness. And consciousness being very different from brain function. And so we have to make that distinction, which is still the conundrum of psychology. I've discussed this previously on episodes of the show, that this is what's called the hard problem in psychology. What is mind? What is brain? We discuss both on this program, and today we are discussing the relationship between the two, but primarily we're discussing mind. So why are we so concerned with understanding this notion of self, and why would we want to move as the uh, Buddhist disciplines uh, and texts guide us in their teachings towards a practice of selflessness? Well, this is a very long topic, but just to reduce it down to the fundamentals of Buddhist thought, uh, and that is that um, we create, we we, we are we experience suffering because we uh, grasp or avert uh, ourselves uh, towards or from experience. We grasp towards desire. We cling towards the, the experiences that um, feel pleasurable to us, and we cringe and withdraw and avoid experiences that are uncomfortable and that are aversive to us. And this, of course, creates quite a roller coaster effect in terms of our um, functioning and our relationships and our understanding of the world and how we structure our world. And this is the bigger mission here, is to understand how civil society has been constructed uh, morally, ethically, legislatively, um, you know, in terms of how we get along with one another and what we consider appropriate behavior and what our understanding is of um, the human condition. And so if we want to move towards a more enlightened society, we have to really understand the nature, the complex nature of uh, the trap that we fall into with ego and with self. And you can see this writ larger in the world. You know, if you look at the Cold War, for example, or now the Cold War has shifted perhaps between the East and the West, not so much in terms of the Soviet Union, but the war on on uh, Islam uh, versus the West, which is not a, a religious war. It really is a values war. And um, that's a much larger topic. Maybe we'll explore it another time. But it's it's essentially the war of individualism versus war of the of the collective. And so, how does how do we bring this back to the individual level? Well, if we're going to get along with ourselves, first within ourselves and then in our relationships with others, why is egolessness so critical? Well, let's start with ourselves. So many of us experience a lot of grief and suffering because we wrestle with how we experience ourselves 
and the, the gap and the divide and the conflicts between that and how we want to be experiencing ourselves or who we think we should be. And this is all based on, again, some notion that uh, that there that there is a self to be wrestled with. And of course, when we are in conflict with that, and when we are in that fundamental disagreement with ourselves, uh, then it creates suffering within us, and it creates conflict um, arising out of those afflictive emotions with others. So, how do we address this? Well, of course, in the Buddhist path the discussion is around um, meditation and not just the discussion but actually the discipline that's that's prescribed is, is meditation because in the process of meditation or mindful awareness one can experience egolessness because you're able to observe bear witness to uh, this erratic nature this destructive nature of of the ego or the mind, that it is activity, it's all activity that's occurring within your mind and your higher consciousnesses, if you will, is able to um, just be present with that and not to avoid certain things and not to cling to certain things. And that's kind of the steady gaze, if you will, at the nature of mind that gives us kind of a, a peace and a letting go. And we can just experience the freshness of uh, life as it is. So there's a segue there into uh, one of my favorite uh, teachers um, who I'm going to read a segment from, uh, who is the great Tibetan uh, teacher, Chogyam Trumpa, uh, one of the, the initial, if not the first, Tibetan teachers to come over to the West, certainly the one to... Uh, make the deep Buddhist teachings from the Tibetan tradition uh, certainly accessible, if not um, even more profoundly um, popularized uh, through the Shambhala organization that he established worldwide, starting with Naropa University in Boulder, California. Um, but Chogya Trungpa himself was educated at Oxford, and um, very erudite and very, at the same time, very, very um, practical and insightful in his teaching and in his work from a psychological point of view, which is what Buddhism really is. It's a, a, it is a very sophisticated form of psychological inquiry. So I'm going to read from a chapter of um, one of my favorite books of Chogyam Trungpa called The Myth of Freedom and the Way of Meditation. And this is a chapter on egolessness in the book. Okay, so the chapter begins thus. The effort to secure our happiness, to maintain ourselves in relation to something else, is the process of ego. But this effort is futile because there are continual gaps in our seemingly solid world, continual cycles of death and rebirth, constant change. The sense of continuity and solidity of self is an illusion. There is really no such thing as ego, soul, or atman. It is the succession of confusions that create ego. The process which is ego actually consists of a flicker of confusion, a flicker of aggression, a flicker of grasping, all of which exist only in the moment. 
Since we cannot hold on to the present moment, we cannot hold on to me and mine and make them solid things. The experience of oneself relating to other things is actually a momentary discrimination, a fleeting thought. If we generate these fleeting thoughts fast enough, we can create the illusion of continuity and solidity. It is like watching a movie. The individual film frames are played so quickly that they generate the illusion of continual movement. So we build up an idea, a preconception that self and other are solid and continuous. And once we have this idea, we manipulate our thoughts to confirm it and are afraid of any contrary evidence. It is this fear of exposure, this denial of impermanence that imprisons us. It is only by acknowledging impermanence that there is chance to die and the space to be reborn and the possibility of appreciating life as a creative process. That is a fantastic passage. Before I go any further, I want to relate that to uh, two programs, at least that in the past that I've done uh, relating to vulnerability. As a um, form of emotional intelligence um, and part of um, essential human personality development, uh, something that Brene Brown has become very widely uh, known for. She's a you know social scientist researcher and TED Talk person, and uh, she's spoken and written um, extensively on vulnerability. And this relates to ego in the sense that uh, we develop this false sense, or pardon me, this false self um, in early childhood because we are so vulnerable in in a, in a uh, not in a positive trait way, but vulnerable just by definition that we are young and and prone to uh, sensitivity and distortions of thought and emotion because uh, we don't understand how to process our feelings. And any perceived slights or um, neglect or admonition from parents can be internalized as uh, a threat to our acceptance and our well-being in the world, and so we start to develop false behaviors or a false personality uh, to win over acceptance and approval and uh, but we are always in sort of disconnect from ourselves and so the thing that we really want which is connection uh, with other people and emotional intimacy is now set up squarely against the need to survive and so we hide from vulnerability thinking that because we're going to be seen for who we really are which is what we desperately want so we've fallen into this paradox and that's the notion, partly uh, what I wanted to address in today's show. What Trogi Atripa addresses here that's so fascinating is, on a larger level, um, how that uh, sets us up to uh, be in conflict with vulnerability in a way, because um, we, as he says here, we build up an idea a preconception that self and other are solid and continuous. And once we have this idea, we manipulate our thoughts to confirm it and are afraid of any contrary evidence. So in other words, we we form this sense of self and we we really believe it to be true and then it has to be defended and defended in opposition to other, that there are other people. Now, that's an aberration of a normal process in psychological and, and cognitive development and social development in early childhood where you have to differentiate. You have to um, learn that there are people other than you 
and that they have their own feelings and thoughts and perceptions of the world. But um, to structure your your idea of reality as a driving principle that and, and for that to become entrenched is very dangerous. And so the vulnerability link here between these two thinkers is that is this second part of this passage from Chogyam Trumpa, where he says this. It is this fear of exposure, this denial of impermanence that imprisons us. So by impermanence, he's using that general term in uh, Buddhist teaching that's talking about life, the cycle of life and death, and that we are all going to age and uh Disease is part of aging, um, and death is the ultimate stage of, dis- of disease or the aging process, and that we can't control that, and certainly can't control it when it comes sooner or unexpected or in very challenging ways uh, in our lives, whether it be um, our loved ones or ourselves. It is only by acknowledging impermanence that there is chance. There is the chance to die and the space to be reborn, and the possibility of appreciating life as a creative process. And I'm going to read a little further down, um, because he gets into a bit of a technical discussion here. Um, essentially what he's saying is that, you know, you can first recognize that there's there's the ego. And then the second part of it is you can say, okay, now I've recognized that there's an ego, I want to let it go. And you can fall into a bit of a trap, because you're still observing the phenomenon of ego, Itself, And so the whole idea is um, to completely rid ourselves of any concept of ego or egolessness, that we are just able to be present with what is. Um, so I'll go to the end of the chapter here. And he says, A true understanding of egolessness cuts through opinion. You know, what's the point of ego? If we have no ego, then we wouldn't be suffering. All these debates that we can get into. Um, The absence of a notion of egolessness allows us to fully experience pain, birth, and death because there are no philosophical paddings. The whole idea is that we must drop all reference points, all concepts of what is or what should be. Then it is possible to experience the uniqueness and vividness of phenomena directly. There is tremendous room to experience things, to allow experience to occur and pass away. Movement happens within vast space. Whatever happens, pleasure and pain, birth and death and so forth are not interfered with, but are experienced in their fullest flavor. Whether they are sweet or sour, they are experienced completely without philosophical overlays or emotional attitudes to make things seem lovable or presentable. Now this is interesting. He's talking again about revising this phenomenological experience of of, um, life being happening moment to moment like a movie. And the difference is is that life unfolds and we can be present with it. Or the trap we fall into, most of us, is that we have these flickers, as he he says, of aggression or grasping or desire or um, destructive emotions, and that we string those along like that is what our reality is. And certainly, this is a form of mental illness. Uh, by definition, if you look at um, psychosis or, um, you know, schizoidal personality disorders like schizophrenia, you know, we typically look at these as um, distortions of perception and thought and reality. And say so this person is not in touch with with 
consensual reality. But the very notion of ego, as it's described here, is a kind of madness. Um, it is a kind of insanity because we are constructing a reality based on our impulsive, destructive emotions and our perceptions. And again, trying to strengthen or shore up this ego. It's a, it's a delusion. And so I'll continue with what he says here. And essentially the idea here being that the movie is life itself. Life just unfolds by itself, frame to frame, so to speak. Um, and we can experience it as without any gaps between the, the movie frames, if you will, that it is just occurring in vast, limitless space. Whatever happens, pleasure and pain, birth and death, and so forth, are not interfered with but are experienced in their fullest flavor. Okay, I read that part, the last part here. We are never trapped in life because there are constant opportunities for creativity, challenges for improvisation. Ironically, by seeing clearly and acknowledging our egolessness, we may discover that suffering contains bliss, impermanence contains continuity or eternity, and egolessness contains the earth quality of solid being. But this transcendental bliss, continuity, and beingness is not based on fantasies, ideas, or fears. So he's talking about this in the context of this book, which is called The Myth of Freedom. And Freedom being, uh, it's it's hinting at another title uh, that he wrote called um, Cutting Through Spiritual Materialism, which gives us a stronger insight into his thinking. That is this, again, this conceptual trap that we fall into that, oh, I'm meditating or I'm a self-aware spiritual person and therefore I've beat the ego. I'm in control of the ego. And what he's talking about is coming from a very tantric perspective, the ancient Vedic uh, or Buddhist um, uh, approach. It's probably the best way to put it. Um, and that is to experience life in its full richness directly, in its vividness, as he's describing here. And you could also relate it to Zen. In Zen, the uh, practice, which is a form of Buddhism, of course, um, it, the, the idea is to engage reality as it is. And so the um, discipline in Zen is to, is to sit in, in Zazen, which is the meditation, and just be an experience. And then you take that into your daily life and your waking life and everything that you do is infused with that sense of presence. Now for those of us who have adapted this way in life, um, you can see people like this who are just more engaged, able to have a high tolerance for vulnerability, can experience joy, can um, experience grief fully. Their heart is open. Their heart has that um, flow quality to it that it does not seize up um, at the panic of the idea of impermanence and it, and either by trying to hold on to experiences or to um, avoid discomfort and pain. And so this is a very profound overview. So if I can tie this all back together, very simply put, in your own way, in your life, if you can catch yourself and recognize who is the person that is uh, offended? Who is the person that is has a vested interest? Um, to observe the part of you that is contemplating death, impermanence, uh, who is afraid of fully living and engaging with life. Where 
do I experience myself freezing up to being creative and part of, as he says, this improvisation of life? Um, the craziness. We all, we all, many of us, love improv comedy or stand-up comics or live musical performance precisely for this reason because it has that quality of um, freshness to it, vividness of that um, improvisational quality of, of things being uncertain and impermanent. And um, we're all here on this ride. And so just to enjoy the ride for what it is. Well, that's a lot for today's show. I'm going to end it there. You might want to look into those readings yourself or just have that to contemplate. But I encourage you to take you know, daily moments of self-reflection and not just to think about the issues and rattle around in your head with the things that you're trying to solve, the problems and projects that you, you know, we all tinker with in our minds, but to look at the nature of mind itself, to observe how your mind actually works, to step back and recognize that ego is so much at work, and to start to have that taste of what it might be like to be without that pervading sense of self. That there can be a small ego. You have your likes and dislikes, but essentially to be operating as an as a enlightened mind, as a heart rather than a cerebral mind, an intelligent heart that's open, open, not attached to things, not attached to ideas, um, not taking things so personally. Well, thanks for listening today. And as always, it's my pleasure to bring you these topics. I'm excited about some opportunities that are coming up in the future, including webcasting a TV version of this program. A little teaser there today to think about in the coming weeks and months. Hope you have a great day. This has been Michael Gordon, Mind Whisper on Blog Talk Radio. Be well. And we'll see you next time. Please visit our Facebook page and like our Facebook page. And thanks for all your support. Take care.